This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening. You are with Lee Chui Lin and Sharad Kutin. Tonight, a conversation about the rental of partition rooms and the balance between affordability, safety, and livability. First, we'll be hearing from Dr. Soraya Ismail from Kazana Research Institute to get her perspective. And then later on, we'll be hearing from BFM's own Dashan Johan about his experience of staying in a room list like this. So let us know your thoughts. As always, you can tweet us at BFM Radio and send us a voice note or WhatsApp at our U mobile number 018-789-8899. This is Inside Story. Okay, so to start us off, uh, this actually is based on an article from almost a month ago when the local government development ministry decided to increase crackdowns against tiny partition room rentals. Now, this is because um, essentially there are concerns about safety. Um, the minister, Nga Koming, specifically said that they will take stern action against those who rent out small and narrow rooms. Um, prior to that statement, in fact, Sina Daly had reported on rental rooms that were, and I quote, the size of a grave. Yeah, the size of a grave is an interesting expression because, you know, in some countries, you know, they even have hotels where you kind of put yourself into a little cubicle, like a little hive-like thing. But I know what people are concerned about because I've lived in sort of condominium that was basically repurposed for young people and students, and it can be quite dehumanizing. Like every conceivable bit that can be changed into a room-like structure is in fact then changed into such and rented out. So I think the tricky thing here is um, the is understanding why it is that these rooms are being offered in the first place, right? So of course you could argue that from the side of the people who are actually partitioning the rooms that it's sheer she Expl- agreed. Yeah, yeah agreed, you know, um, it's right. it's this attempt to try and maximize the amount of space, maximize the amount of money you can get from that space, and I understand that. Um, why it's being taken up, though, that I think is worth looking at. You know, whether people feel that the trade-offs, at least in the short term, are worth it. Whether they feel that, well, this is what I can afford. This is where I want to be, and so this is what I. This is meeting a need for the time being. I don't think that that negates the questions around things like safety, though, because those continue to be a concern. Dehumanization, livability, all that stuff, very important. Um, Now, having said that, right, Ibilic, which have a stake in the game, their rental property management site, they argued that these partition rooms are actually essential for, um, I I guess in some ways the people I was talking about, young people and um, the B40 who cannot afford entire units. Uh, They said that the average size size of a partition room is actually 80 square feet. And that typically, I think there are, they are also arguing that there are other amenities that come along with the rental of that small space, you know, a shared kitchen, things like that. Yeah, but you know, Lynn, it can be quite um, outrageous what some, uh, you know, homeowners will do, right? I, I knew one, one instance at least where the kitchen 
was turned into a room or maybe two. And so they lost that facility as, a, you know, like you said, a, a shared service. Um, there is, I think, maybe a premium on privacy because you can imagine another way of stacking people in two rooms, which is bunk beds and, and mm, such, right? Sure. That could be a way of actually putting many more people into a room, but then they lose privacy. And I think um, that is something that people hold on to, even as even when they're young and they're university, they want a bit of that uh, and maybe they will trade everything else for it. Just to give you a sense of how much these things cost, right? So um, these are from a rental website and a partition room in SS1 and PJ can go for something like 490 a month and there are basic furnishings, amenities like internet, water heater, induction cook- cooker. Uh, another example in SS15, uh, about 540. So again, I think hovering at about the 500 ringgit Mark and with similar facilities with the addition of a weekly cleaning service. So I I think that that just is, it's an important number, right, to be able to look at exactly how much these things are costing. Yeah, but doesn't it sound outrageous? It does. When you you think about how little you're getting, um, you know, uh, and if you think that you know, there's one thing is to talk about students, but the other is actually working, young working adults. And that's why you see in my neighborhood, because I live in PJ, is that 15 to 20 people will be sharing, maybe they're all food panda riders or whatever it is, sharing a single house. Yes. Um, so that's what we're talking about today, partition rooms and spaces. Let us know your thoughts and experiences. You can send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. You can tweet us at BFM Radio. After this, we'll be joined by Dr. Soraya Ismail, Research Director at Kazana Research Institute. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Be firmly motivated. BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody. Good evening. You are with Lynn and Sharad on Inside Story. And what we're talking about today is the rental of partition rooms and trying to understand um, the balance that needs to be struck, right, between affordability and livability. Let us know your thoughts. You can send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. You can tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us now to talk about this is Dr. Soraya Ismail, Research Director at Kazana Research Institute. Dr. Soraya, thanks for speaking with us. So... Partition and coffin rooms aren't unique to Malaysia. It's an issue that a lot of Asian countries also face. But how common exactly are these rooms as a rental option in the Klang Valley? Who are its main renters? Um, Actually, we do not have the number of renters um, of these tiny uh, coffin rooms um, simply because um, there is no Rental Tenancy Act. And to understand the characteristics of the rooms, of these tiny rooms. Um, therefore, it's not regulated and not monitored. Therefore, we do not know what is in the agreement because we have no law for us to go and look into a private contract between a tenant and a landlord. So in actual sense, um, an approximation of who are the renters, um, we still don't have the definite figure. But if you look at some statistics of um, Greater KL, um, Kuala Lumpur as a district, as a wilaya, uh, 50% of the uh, inhabitants or households are renting. So that's the only gauge we have about rent, uh, renters, but how the, the size of the um, bedrooms, how tiny or small it is, is something that we can't decipher from our available data. Can you help us understand how a partition room is typically structured? 
It's a very interesting uh, phenomenon, really, uh, because back in the 1990s, um, we actually have rooms to be rented, um, and these rooms to be rented are part of a, a bigger house, and you have maybe three rooms in the house, and these rooms are rented as it is in that area that's part of the house. The current phenomenon, starting from 2000 onwards, is that even the living space, the living room, is being partitioned as a, as a room, and even the rooms that we have in a house is being partitioned into two, three rooms. So essentially what we are creating if with a, the new wave or the new model for renting now are dormitories. And these are rooms that are very small, partitioned in such a way that it's just floorboards. And it's really not safe. What dangers does this kind of room design pose to its occupants? So apart from the obvious, which is um, the physical um, uh, bomba regulation, whereby in any house we should have uh, there is an act that governs the way in which people do a fire exit, the density allowed in a house. With partitioning buildings or uh, houses or apartments or condos, an apartment that's meant for just three or five person goes up until ten person. In terms of density, that's only that's already a high fire hazard for them to exit or egress from the room when there's a fire. Now, even the building condition or the partition is just a floorboard. Um, these are things that will not sustain fire from growing to from one room to the other. So it's quite a fire hazard to everybody who's renting in these partition rooms. That's in terms of the physical bit. There's also natural daylight, uh, environmental physics, where people don't get any... Um, windows in these partition rooms, not to mention the mental um, impact it has had. Where we see people from uh, Hong Kong, especially when they live in coffin rooms and they have shared access to just a bathroom and a kitchen, there's a lot of mental depression is happening and a lot of problems, even for young families. Because it has crept into young families now. We have seen incidences of young families also in partition rooms. I Bilek has said that the average partition rooms are 80 square feet and these range from 490 to 500 ringgit per month to rent. How are rents for these spaces usually determined? You see, when, that, when you leave the market to, its, to and of itself, this is what we call the abuse of the market. So I, I, I'm looking at this 80 square feet. And I'm, uh, we've, Karai has just done a, a, a survey of uh, PPR buildings, which is social housing in Malaysia, meant for the really um, those in poverty, those who are urban poor. And their bedroom, bedroom one is about 100 square feet. Bedroom two is about 70 square feet. So your rooms under IB Lake is 80 square feet with a range of 492 to 540. So it has a lower um, standards of a second and third bedroom of PPR, but it fetches a higher rate of rent because a rental for PPR is about 124 to 220 for the whole unit, which is about uh, 650 square feet to uh, this is the current one. They might upgrade it furthermore. But looking at the living standards, I mean, this is actually abhorring. I mean, why would you want to have a standard which is less than for the urban poor, and yet you're paying for so much more? Are there currently regulations in terms of the minimum size for living spaces? Do we need to have stronger laws in place? Um, of course, there are um, uh, standards of, of um, what should be 
um, a unit, a house unit, and what is the standard of the sizes of the rooms inside that unit. Currently, this does not fall into any of that um, a building by laws because this is just a room. So if I'm saying that you are having a room in its actual building plan, so there is a, a current standard, which is uh, uh, one bedroom with, uh, sorry, one bedroom apartment. It's about 420 square feet. Um, that's the, the UK standard. And over here, a three bedroom apartment in Malaysia, it's about a thousand, uh, sorry, 900 square feet. And we have um, rooms for room sizes for each individual or individual rooms. Even in Singapore, the HDB flats, they have a floor area of between 387 to 484 for not one bedroom apartment. So all these are meant for units of housing, not rooms. But having said that, should we have regulation for partition rooms when in and of itself, it is not legal to do this. IBIC lists down a number of facilities that are available to tenants. Do you think that these other benefits make up for the tiny spaces? No, it is not sufficient because it does not fulfil the actual um, standards of what makes a good and livable house and shelter. So putting all these aesthetics is not sufficient. Following the crackdown, IB Lake has come out to say that partition rooms are beneficial for those who can't afford to rent an entire unit for themselves. Realistically, is this the most viable option for people looking for inexpensive places to live in? This is, this is what we call um, a group of people having capital, in this sense, in terms of um, shelter, um, saying that is the best way for you to live in a very bad um, livable environment, very small, tiny partition bedrooms with um, no safety concern for fire hazards as well as mental health. And yet this is seen or given the impression that this is what is needed. Um, this is shortchanging our citizens and I think it's very right that the government is saying no to this. Are there other solutions we could be thinking about for urban living? So the, the most important thing is to ensure that this has been a very important um, way in which we can um, regulate the Rental Tenancy Act uh, between landlords and tenants. It cannot be that this is a, like a cowboy town. Whatever people want, because that's all they can afford, um, is what we give them just because this is what the private landlords would want to do without taking into account standards um, as well as um, health health and um, safety issues. If that's the case, I mean, for me, giving rooms like this is actually like giving, you know, uh, if we have parallels to a car, a very um, not fit for the road car, and we just give it to people because it's cheaper. These are substandard goods. This shouldn't be in the market to begin with. Now, these are the ones that disrupt the market structure. If we don't have sub-quality conditions of buildings, this will not create that this um, avenue for people to profit from dilapidated buildings and buildings that are not uh, that's not supposed to be used for this sort of um, uh, shelter. So, one of the ways in which we can ex make it better for occupants who come uh, to to work in in say urban cities is to ensure that we go back to making um, housing affordable in terms of ensuring that the house prices go down because that's the real issue here and secondly 
then rental prices will go down as well because the mortgage being paid for these houses will not be exorbitantly high that you have to have like 20 individuals renting in the one house. Now, secondly, say, for example, these landlords do have their mortgage already you know, paid for. What is uh, stopping them from giving a 80 square feet house for a, a $800 because say market price is say what, 1,300 RM per house. This will not end because at the end of the day, there is no regulation um, uh, to ensure that prices don't go up based on um, what is right or what is what the real market structure is because the market structure is being abused by monopolistic consideration. And hence, this is why um, we are all price takers. We are not um, making it competitive. So this is really not an issue about, oh, it's, it's because the market cannot supply good affordable housing. No, it is because the market is rigged. So what we need is making sure that the government puts in place um, safeguards as well as good building regulation, execute all this at the local municipal council so that houses are not being done in such a way and the supply side will be better and more efficacious for those at different income strata. Now, this would happen and it has happened in other countries who have put in a lot of bylaws and rental tenancy act laws. This, this is not, there is no rental tenancy act in Malaysia as we speak now. I'd like to get into uh, the link between well-designed spaces and an individual's well-being. When designing spaces, how small is too small? What are the different ways to measure this? Okay, in terms of standards, what is too big or what is too small? Um, standards of uh, housing standards have been um, done in many countries and we have references for Malaysia, for even um, you know the highest standard would be in UK and Singapore. And they've done it in such a way that they've taken into account circulation, well-being, um, and all this is inside the documentation of um, housing standards. And it's not really you know, difficult to find it. For example, there's a nationally described space standards for UK 2015, minimum gross floor internal areas and storage. So for one bedroom, it's about 400 square feet. Uh, a two-bedroom is about 800 square feet. So it's, and within that, depending on the orientation of the building, the orientation of the floor plan, the rooms could be as big as 100 square feet or as, as small as 90 square feet or even bigger. So it depends on how best the architect designed it. But in as a, as a guideline, um, these are all the minimum minimum gross internal floor areas. So it's been done in the UK, it's been done in the uh, Singapore. And basically what we have here, 80 square feet, is, is, is basically um, it is a room type of um, standards. And people don't do that in terms of rooms because the way it's been done, this partitioning is about dormitories. This has no space in any of the housing building standards. How does a too small room impact an occupant's well-being and quality of life? Oh, um, we have seen a lot of uh, mental um, stress as well as uh, difficulty to cope with um, small spaces. Um, this has been uh, reported quite heavily in Hong Kong, especially. Um, we also see the, the post-pandemic um, um, issues coming up where 
when we have small rooms, um, the ventilation and the way in which inhabitants try to make sure that they have a safe space as well as good ventilation to mitigate the adverse effects of health um, during the COVID was clearly negligible in small spaces. At the same time, we look at some work in India whereby uh, small spaces propagate a lot of um, outbreak of epidemic because it's one of those places, again, with no proper ventilation, with uh, a lot of um, unduly stress on the mind and on the body. Any final thoughts for us? Yeah, I think um, I understand that there are certain challenges in ensuring that we have good shelter for people who are struggling in the city. But that shouldn't come with the shortchanging of their livable um, standards for housing, um, because that, that is not what a livable city is all about. So, so I think strong enforcement of housing standards for, as, as mentioned by the government, is very, very important to ensure that we don't put people at a position whereby they have to stay in tiny rooms just because the supply is there, when the supply is clearly not the right type of supply. Dr. Suraya, thanks for speaking with us. That was Dr. Suraya Ismail, Research Director at Kazana Research Institute. We are talking today about the rental of small partitioned rooms and asking you for your thoughts. You can send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. You can also tweet us at BFM Radio. Become fabulous millionaires. BFM 89.9. Good evening. You're listening to Inside Story with Lynn and Sherrod. And uh, our focus today is on partition rooms and the rental of them. I, I think most of us will be familiar with the practice. You pointed out earlier, Sherrod, you know, you see lots and lots of people living in one space. You can tell because they come and go. Um, and I think the there's been a push and pull between people who accuse folks who rent these spaces out as just, you know, greedy, capitalistic, exploitative. Um, and then the other perspective, which is that, well, it's offering a, a needed service. Some people simply, this is what they can afford. So uh, we heard earlier from our guest, Dr. Suraya Ismail, Research Director at Kazana Research Institute. And now we actually have a personal experience because we have joining us uh, BFM's own Dashran Johan, who is the producer and presenter at The Bigger Picture. And he's actually experienced living in one of these partition rooms. Dash, firstly, could you describe the condition of the room that you lived in? Okay, so it wasn't deplorable per se, but it wasn't exactly dignified either. So let me just describe what my room looked like. So there was enough space for one single bed. There was one small desk, one small wardrobe, and that's pretty much it. Um, after that, there was only space for, there's about two big tiles of space left. So there was only space for me to be in there. Um, even if I wanted to do push-ups in my room, for example, right, or, or just exercise in my room, there was no space. Right, so it's only space for me to stand up, maybe sit down. But I occasionally did have fr have friends over, and everybody would just have to sit on the single bed, right, or on the floor. So that's how tiny my room was. Luckily, there were windows um, in the room um, because some other rooms in the house did not even have windows, which I don't know how people live in in that kind of setting, right? Because even in my setting. I feel that it was already 
a big challenge in in terms of that. Um, and I'm glad I at least had windows. But but yeah, it it was definitely um, it, it's it's essentially like a shoebox. What led you to renting a partition room? I mean, at that time, what were your options really? So I think that's that's an interesting question, right? Because I think that were that was my essentially own, essentially that was my only option um, available to me as a student. Um, and then the first three years of when I started working, um, and obviously I could have asked my parents, but you see that that was what I could afford without needing to ask my parents too much or, or needing them to get involved too much. Of course, when I was in my university days, they did um, um, obviously pay for my rent and, and so on and so forth. I was privileged that way. I didn't need to work an additional part-time job or anything like that. But, you know, especially once I started working, I didn't want to trouble them. So that was pretty much the only option available. See, the thing is, it was um, RM400 ringgit a month in Damansara Jaya, um, and this RM400 included utilities, um, except ac- excluding aircon. Um, so aircon, outside each room, there was a, your own meter. Um, so when you use the aircon, then the meter starts running. But apart from that, um, this RM400 included Wi-Fi, um, water, electricity, and, and so on and so forth. I could use the kitchen and, and all of that, right? And it was also located in Damansara Jaya, which is a prime location, um, you know, nearby my university at the time. So I guess location, which is very important, um, you know, I came from out of town. Um, I didn't have a car back then. I only had uh, bought a car once I started working. So I needed somewhere where I could just walk back and forth to college, uh, to college, um, and of course, most importantly is affordability. Um, there were other options available in the sense that, you know, if I didn't want a house, um, a, a room made of walls where if I wanted to punch it and if I just punched it a little bit hard, it would have had a hole in it. If I wanted a room with actual brick walls at that time, so we're talking about 2013 onwards, now it's probably, the, the price range is probably higher. But that, at that time when I was looking around, you know, rooms with brick walls, you needed to go 650 ringgit, you know, per room. Um, and then up some some of my friends rented up to 1,200 ringgit per room. Um, obviously, it's going to be way better. But yeah, so that that's the kind of money that I didn't have. Um, so yeah, I had to look for something which I found affordable, which is 400 ringgit. What can I get in 400 ringgit, 500, 400 to 500 ringgit? Um, and yeah, so the only thing available in a decent, good location, um, which is also affordable, was this petition shoebox. How did living there um, affect your mental or perhaps your emotional well-being? I would say that for the first few years, it didn't affect me negatively. In fact, I was very happy, especially when I was a student. But I was happy not because it's a petition room. I was happy because I wasn't thinking too much about it, right? I was, uh, you know, I wasn't like, I was, I was from out of town. I was, I'm from JB. So all I ever wanted to do is like, you know, move out, you know, um, see what it's like to live on my own um, and then go out of town of, and study in, in university. So at that point, um, you could have been a literal shoebox and I think it wouldn't have dampened my spirits in that sense, right? I, I, I just was very happy that I got this place that's, all, that's my own. Um, this isn't to say that the... The, the living conditions are, are okay or acceptable or, or this, you know, you should make these kind of calculations if you're a landlord. Oh, these are just students. They're from out of town. They don't care. They're excited. It, it's, it's not about that, but I'm just saying for myself, 
um, I wasn't too disturbed by the living conditions. Mostly also because, you know, um, college days especially, you're barely at home. You know, you go to school from morning until evening maybe. And then after that, you're always, I mean, at least for me, Monday to Friday, I was out. I would come back at midnight maybe. And then that room is just for you to sleep. And then maybe weekends also, you're spending a lot lot of time outside. So you had a few hours every day, maybe 10 hours max on weekends in the room. So I didn't think too much of it. But, but and here, here's a very important thing, right? I started to feel it and it really took a huge um, effect on my mental health when, um, during the pandemic, I would say. Like, even when I started working, I think after the college days, I already started to feel like, oh, why am I staying in this kind of place? You know, and, and it, you know, especially when because when I was working in my previous place, I had a quite a flexible sort of work arrangement. I had worked from uh, I worked from home uh, two three times a week sometimes, and it that's when I started to feel it, right? Like, oh my god, like you know, when you're working from home and you're in this this shoebox type of room, it is you wake up on the bed and you work one step not even one step away from the bed and then you are eating there as well and so you're just there the whole day you know and you're doing work there and your so-called even your entertainment time where you, your laptop becomes your TV is also there so it, then it started to affect me and then when the pandemic hit you know I started to feel really suffocated like it was really bad in that sense um, thankfully like you know when the pandemic hit I was already at BFM so we didn't have a full-on work-from-home arrangement because we can't. We need to come to, sh- uh, to the office and do our shows and things like that. So we had this alternate weeks arrangement. Um, team A would come to, to the office one week and then the next week, Team A would work from home and Team B would be in the office. So thankfully, I had that. You know, I could go out of the house and all of that. But even then, when the pandemic hit, um, it was really on the weeks where I had to stay at home from morning until night it was really, really, it really felt like suffocating. I could feel this this sense of sadness or and, and you know, just being very overwhelmed, like this this feeling of wanting to really just break out of, of that situation. What do you think you could have done to improve your living conditions at that time? I don't think I could have done anything to li- improve my working condition uh, or living conditions, sorry, at that time, to be honest. I mean, um, you know, I had... Uh, it's it's I, I don't think I could have done anything. That was the situation. It's, yeah, maybe I could have put like a couple of photos on the wall or posters, but I don't think that would have made a whole host of difference. To be honest, I don't think this kind of living condition should exist in the first place. Um, I think what we need is a government intervention. We need have to have rent controls. We need to say strictly no partition housing. I know like there, it's the legality of it is kind of in the gray area and, and things like that. It's People still do it. Everybody knows it. I don't think these things should be allowed to exist. I think the government should take very seriously on these partition houses, but then not just allow rent to be 700 ringgit, 1,000 ringgit, right? It is about how do you intervi- intervene, have rent control um, and m- implement it, monitor it very effectively so that people can get affordable, dignified housing. Um, if 500 ringgit is what you can afford, you get that within, um, you know, this and, and within whatever house that you're renting, right? So landlords shouldn't be allowed to petition their house and there should be government intervention, there should be rent control. 
Dash, thanks for speaking with us. That was Dashran Johan, producer and presenter at The Bigger Picture, sharing his experience living in partition rooms. Um, if you'd like to share your thoughts with us, you can, of course, send us a WhatsApp 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.